Thanks, Mike. What's that? Oh, got an eyeglass collection started here. I'm going to put them down here. Well, as Jim mentioned to you, uh, thanks for the prayers coming up for my traveling. I'll be uh, traveling to Rome and doing some filming in Rome as well as a number of sites in Greece and Turkey and then in Israel uh, doing some filming and then also leading a tour in Israel and Jordan. So be gone all of February. So every time a Sunday rolls around you go, oh yeah, Wayne's not here. Please remember to, to pray for me. Um, we'll be going to Turkey, and Turkey, as you know, is a little more sensitive to, um, to Christians than, than Greece and certainly Israel. And um, so just, just pray for God's grace and that we could be as invisible as the Lord would allow us to be, especially with our cameras. When cameras come out, all of a sudden, you know, everybody gets real interested in what you're doing. And they want to listen to what you're saying. And, and again, in a sense, that's great, because then they get to hear the Word of God, but then it can also be very intimidating when they want to shut you down. So I plan to be filming a whole year's worth of content in about two and a half weeks. So it's a pretty rigorous schedule, about 40-plus episodes of video. So uh, there's not a lot of margin for sickness or bad weather or... Um, bad attitudes. <laughs> so, anyway. I read a book several years ago called Heaven is for Real. You may remember that book. It was a bestseller. They even made a movie out of it. And inter interesting, though, the, the title of the book, the subtitle of the book, Heaven is for Real, and the subtitle is A Little Boy's Astounding Journey, of his trip to heaven and back. After I read the book, I thought the subtitle could be better, A Little Boy's Story of His Trip to the Hospital and Back. Because the, the first half of the book was pretty much all backstory, just sort of leading up to what the reason that you bought the book. And it was a fascinating read, I guess. You know, my antenna was up from the word go, because all these books that sort of make a, a, a name for themselves because of a, a claim to have died and gone to heaven and come back. Um, you know, I tend to view with a little skepticism. And so as I read it, I, I, I confessed that I wasn't on board from the word go. And then as I read it more and more, I got less and less on board, especially when parts of it began to contradict Scripture. Like it said that the, uh, the only, the, everybody in heaven has wings except Jesus. It said that um, if you don't go to heaven, you don't get a new body. To which I'm thinking, yeah, well, that whole rapture thing's out then. So there's, there's, some, there's some challenges with it theologically. And it's not the least of which when Paul writes that he was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible words, things that man is not permitted to tell. So Paul can't talk about it, but we can talk about it. So it, it, it's a bit of a challenge for me. But I guess the biggest challenge, I think, would be that we don't need a book to tell us that heaven is for real when we have a book that has already said that for a long, long time with witnesses that are credible with, with uh, the resurrection of Jesus, not the least of which. But the great thing about... But, and this seriously, the great thing about this book as well as all books that, and even movies that sometimes don't get it just right is the opportunity that it, it provides for us to talk about it and the interest that it might create in somebody to actually read the Bible and to see the real truth that, that's expressed there. So let's look together at the best-selling book of all times, and open to the last couple chapters, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. We've been in a series called, that, that is focused on prophecy, specifically prophecy that relates to us looking in the future. 
There's a whole lot of prophecy that's already been fulfilled that we could spend a lot of time on. In fact, one quarter of the Bible was prophetic at the time that it was written. So prophecy is a big deal to, to the Lord. And the fulfillment of that prophecy, as we saw in one of the first couple of times we were together, Jesus said, I've told you these things ahead of time so that when they come to pass, you may believe. So one of the purposes of prophecy in the scripture is to strengthen our faith that God is telling the truth, especially about those things that have yet to come to pass. Well, Revelation 20 is sort of the end of um, the, it, it talks about the millennial kingdom, which we looked at last, last time, the kingdom of God on earth. And then when the kingdom of God comes to an end, when the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth comes to an end, then begins what we, what we call the eternal state. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Typically, when we think of us dying and going to heaven, we think we're just going to sort of fast-track it straight to Revelation 20 at the, at the end, where it's the eternal state. But we have a thousand years still on earth, according to the scripture, uh, on this this physical earth and our resurrected bodies. So that's going to be a, a great, great thing to see Jesus Christ with the government on his shoulders, to, to use Isaiah's words. Re Revelation chapter 20, let's start right in verse 7, where we ended last time in verse 6. The Apostle John writes, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Remember last week when we talked about the second coming of Jesus Christ in the previous chapter in Revelation 19, Jesus came down and remember he was over the Mount of Olives. We talked about his feet touching down on the Mount of Olives and the, how brief the battle was at that time. We even looked at that cartoon that uh, talked about God-man just raising an eyebrow. Of course, that's not in the scripture, but it's a great picture of just the simplicity of Jesus just speaking. It says that the, that the double-edged sword that comes from his mouth, simply his words, the word of God, was powerful enough to end that battle. And yet after a thousand years, uh, we're told that Satan will be released from his prison. And so for a thousand years during the kingdom of God, Satan is imprisoned and he is not tempting the nations. But when he gets out, first thing he does is begin to tempt the nations once again and is able to convince a number of them to uh, oppose the Lord Jesus Christ once again. And we're told that, um, that fire comes down from heaven and devours them. So once again, it's a very short battle. Gog and Magog probably refers to the leaders and the people that Satan deceives. They surround Jerusalem and then they are, they are destroyed. So, uh, last week Satan was con confined in the abyss for a thousand years, but now we're going to look at another confinement that Satan has for a whole lot longer. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and, and night, forever and ever. That's a verse you don't hear talked about a lot from pulpits. It's just not a very popular verse. It's not one that you often see on inspirational plaques at the Christian bookstore, either. And yet there it is, right in the Word of God, that Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone and tormented day and night forever and ever. Not just forever, but forever and ever. And notice that the beast and the false prophet, which we talked about some last time, are there. Not were there, but are there. This is at the end of that thousand years. So they've been in there a thousand years, just the two of them. 
You imagine they're probably sick of each other by then. But just the two of them in uh, what we call hell, the lake of fire, for a thousand years, and then Satan is also thrown in there. I had a lady write me just this week. I thought it was funny. She sent me a story. She said, and I'll just read her words. She said, we had a family who was so kind to us and lived right next door to us. The wife would make us homemade tamales, and we had a cocker spaniel dog, and we had her in a pen in the backyard because she was in heat. Well, their weenie dog came over and, you know, I'll just skip this part she wrote. (laughs) My husband had an air gun and thought, well, if we just hit the dog, it would teach him not to come back. So he pumped his gun a couple times and hit the dog all right. The dog fell over dead. We just looked at each other and thought, oh, my goodness, what have we done? We didn't have the courage to tell the neighbor what we had done. (laughs) So we hid our sin by throwing the dog in our backyard incinerator. <laughs> it's not a joke. This really happened. And then, then she says, and then when the neighbor came and asked, she said, we lied. Well, she was writing this in the context of confession, but I, <laughs> I, th- I saw that and thought, you know, that is, that is so unlike what hell's going to be like. Because you get the idea of being tossed into hell, and it's not that now it's all covered over and done, but it's eternal. It's not an incinerator that removes the problem. People, hell is eternal. And now, that might come across as a little extreme punishment. In fact, some people even believe in a theology called annihilationism which is not that people are tormented forever, but that, that people are just simply annihilated, that, that God in his grace doesn't let them go to heaven because that's just, but rather than letting them be in hell for all eternity, they're just annihilated. The great challenge of this, of course, is that the image of God is in people, and the image of God is eternal, and we're eternal. Heaven is a monument of God's grace, and hell is a monument of God's image. 1994, Miss USA, Miss Alabama, was asked this question. If you could live forever, would you and why? This is her answer. I would not live forever because we should not live forever, because if we were supposed to live forever, then we would not live forever. But we cannot live forever, which is why I would not live forever. (laughs) I'm not sure she won that year, but I thought that answer was great. Well, the challenge is we do live forever. And we live forever in, in one of two places. And the good news is that our judge has also provided the solution. He is not simply a judge that that says, you you go to heaven, you go to hell. But he's a judge that has provided a way that nobody has to go. His grace is that big. God's grace is demonstrated in that he sent his own son to die on the cross for all of our sins. As we said, the beast and the false prophet, this verse shows in verse 10, are in the lake of fire. They are still very much there. And it's a consciousness. And there is a torment day and night, forever and ever. Just like heaven is a real place, so hell is a real place. So what happens to those who don't believe in Jesus, for those who don't believe in the solution? Look at the next verse, verse 11. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, 
And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. You know, today when an unbeliever dies, uh, he or she doesn't go to hell. We typically say that. You're going to die and go to hell. Well, it's sort of a prophetic statement because now when you die, you go, as the Scripture teaches, to Hades. And it's, it's sort of a kind of a holding tank, as it were, pre this judgment. And then once, and it's still a place of torment, though. Jesus used this in his illustration of Lazarus and the rich man. I think if you have the New International Version and you read, and I think it's Luke 16, it actually translates it hell, but that's, that's a bad translation. It's really Hades, that they're in torment in Hades. In the Old Testament, it was called Sheol. The Old Testament Sheol is New Testament Hades, and those are just places that basically are, are temporary abodes until this final judgment. And in this final judgment, we're told that death and Hades, the dead come to life. These dead that come out of death and Hades are the unbelievers of all time, all the unbelievers. And they're resurrected in physical bodies. So there is a physical resurrection for all of us who believe, who are believers. And there's a physical resurrection for those who are not believers. And at this resurrection, we're also told that, that earth and heaven flee away, verse 11. Um, when we read, when we studied uh, the epistles of Peter, we talked about this some, because Peter talks about the earth and its elements being burned up, that there is a judgment that's coming, and it's speaking of this judgment, in which all that God has created is just burned up and destroyed with intense heat. Those are Peter's words. <laughs> And John tells us, expresses it this way, that earth and heaven flee away, and there's no place for them. So everything that has been created up to this point, earth and heaven, are gone. And now you just have these resurrected unbelievers standing before the great white throne of God. And Jesus sitting on the throne, and the books are open. There's two sets of books. There is a book that's open that shows the works of these unbelievers. And we're told in verse 12 and in verse 13 that every one of them are going to be judged according to their deeds. According to their deeds. And, of course, that doesn't go well because we aren't even told the outcome of the judgment. We're just shown the results of that outcome, and they're thrown into the lake of fire. For anybody to come into the presence of God and hope that to be judged by their deeds is going to be a good outcome has, the, has only to read Revelation 20 to realize that it's not a good outcome. Because along with all the good deeds we've done in our life, we also have bad deeds. And the bad deeds uh, are enough to, um, to taint God, the holiness that is God's standard. And it's a very sad picture to be judged according to your deeds. And yet there it is, right in the Scripture. My heart broke years ago when I read that Sophia Loren said this. She said, I'm not a practicant, meaning she doesn't practice religion. But she says, but I pray. I read the Bible. It's the most beautiful book ever written. I should go to heaven, otherwise it's not nice. I haven't done anything wrong. My conscience is very clean. My soul is as white as those orchids over there, and I should go straight, straight to heaven. I'm glad she's still alive. I pray that God opens her, her eyes to grace. Don't you love plan, praying for Hollywood? I mean it. I really mean it. When I read about some of the, the they're always in the news, and so it's a, always a great reminder. But when they express things that are clearly not right, it just, I just pray for them. You know, they're, they're, and there are folks in Hollywood that actually come to Christ. 
Like what's that uh, that rapper that the Kardashians? Yeah, there's a great great example. And uh, Mark Wahlberg, I think, is another. He's Catholic, but he, I mean, if he trusts Jesus Christ, you know, all the baggage. Maybe we can talk about that at some other point. But but nevertheless, you know, God's got His people everywhere, and it's just wonderful to be able to pray and to ask that God would open their eyes to His grace because it's available to everyone. The book of life, we're told here, the book of life is, is not an autograph book of godly people. It's not an autograph book of the works of men. It is a testimony of the grace of God. Everyone in here who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ is written in the book of life. Your name is written there, and it will not be taken away. And it's written there not because of the deeds that you've done or that I've done, but it's written because of the grace of God and, and what He has done. There's two sets of books. There's the book, there, there's the book, one set of books represents the works of people, and its result is condemnation. Another book, the book of life, represents the work of God, and its result is glory and grace and reward. You know who talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible? It was Jesus. Jesus. Gentle Jesus. Meek and mild. Is the one that talked about hell more than anybody else. And the word that he used for hell is the word Gehenna. In fact, we get our word hell from the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna, gay means valley. Henna was referring to the Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley is that valley on the southern part of Jerusalem that, that curves around the bottom. And it was basically the landfill of the first century. Now, some say that the reason that Jesus referred to that uh, valley as hell is because there was um, continual burning, and the worm does not die and the fire is not put out. It was an illustration of, of a continual burning. Maybe that's so. Um, we don't know for sure if that's why he mentioned it. But he referred to that valley as hell. And he, uh, he also, that valley is a, a reference to the horrible things that happened in the Old Testament, especially during the time of Manasseh. Manasseh had child sacrifice in that valley. And it's sort of strange. I've been in the Hinnom Valley many times. And to stand in that valley and just kind of look around and think, horrible things happened right here. And yet, what's wonderful today is you see there are parks and there are children playing and throwing frisbees. And it's, it's sort of a nice change to see the, the contrast between what happened in the time of Manasseh and what in that valley, and now what's happening today in Jerusalem in the Hinnom Valley. It's, a, it's a sort of a picture of how God can, can change things. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else, and the good news is that the one who spoke of hell most of all is the one who also provided a way for no one to have to go there. Everyone who goes is a, is, goes because they've chosen to. Jesus made it clear the night before he died that he was going to go and prepare a place for them, a real, literal, physical place. And outside of that comment, we have very precious few places in the Scripture that talk about heaven. But Revelation 21 and 22 are... Uh, our best, best picture of what heaven is going to be like. So let's turn the corner, if you don't mind, and get out of hell and look into this glorious future that we have. Look at Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. What a beautiful picture. When, usually when we think of heaven, we're thinking of living and what we've just read. And the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven and, and uh, somehow is existing between heaven and earth. 
This is the eternal state that has never seen sin, that will never see sin, that we will get to live in, and our bodies that will never sin, with our Lord Jesus and with God the Father and the Holy Spirit in a place of absolute perfection and paradise. The eternal home of believers is going to be a place of rest and of complete removal of all sins. Notice also that it says here that uh, the tabernacle of God is among men. That word tabernacle ought to sort of trigger something in your mind just as a theme that went throughout all the scriptures. Think about the tabernacle of God. The tabernacle, if you think about that word, and if you're reading through your Bible program, usually uh, when, by the time you get to Leviticus, you're, you kind of slow down. But in the, in the book of Leviticus is all, what do you do with that tabernacle? Exodus, the tabernacle is set up. Leviticus, then the tabernacle, you talk about what you do in it. But that was God's dwelling place among people. God wanted to dwell with his people, but he couldn't dwell with sin. And so he, he created this tabernacle that allowed his glory to be veiled, his glory to be hidden behind the veil. His glory was with them, and yet they were protected from his holiness by this, those separations. And even the priests were, were protected from the glory of God by the separations. You had the, the, the outer court or the, 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 uh, the temple, the holy place, and then the, the holy of holies on the inside. Well, so God dwelt in the tabernacle, and then God moved to the temple, and then God's glory left the temple, and then God's glory came once again in Christ. In fact, Christ even said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. And then in First and Second Corinthians, we're told, Paul says that you, the church, are the temple of God. So now the, the Spirit of God dwells within us. And then here in the eternal state, we're told that now the tabernacle of God is among men. So the tabernacle is just sort of a theme that goes all throughout the Bible of God wanting to dwell with his people, but to do it in a way to where his holiness, to where our sinfulness isn't, uh, isn't compromised by his holiness, or I should say the other way around, his holiness isn't compromised by our sin. What is it that makes our home so comforting? It's probably not the television. It's probably not the yard or the furniture or the bricks. It's the people. When you think of the, the, the comforts of home, it's people. When you think of going home, you're thinking of people. You're not just thinking of you know, a place. Not the least of which we're thinking of. When we think of heaven, we think of God and going and seeing Jesus Christ. Now, have you, have you given much time to think about that? We've all tried to picture what Jesus looks like. You know, for most of us, he looks like, back in the 70s, he looked like Robert Powell for, you know, the actor. Uh, and Jim Caviezel is a little more recent for us. It's hard for us not to, to picture actors that we've seen play Jesus. So who knows what Jesus really looked like? But one day, one day, you're going to see Jesus Christ. I mean, the real Jesus. Not the movie Jesus. The real Jesus. You're going to look right in his face. That's going to be great. And we're going to see him in his presence forever. If it's so wonderful to have people, then who is going to be there? Well, the scripture tells us, but before we read that, I like what the former congressional representative Len Martin said, no matter what your religion, you should try to become a government program, for then you shall have everlasting life. <laughs> I thought that is insightful. Well, 1 John 5, you don't have to turn there, but the same author that wrote Revelation wrote 1 John the Apostle John, and tells us that the victory that has overcome the world is our faith. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are those who get to go into heaven, and we're told that it is without cost. Um, Revelation 21, let's see. Let's start 
We read verse 8. Uh, we didn't read verse 8. Well, let's skip verse 8. That's, uh, that's who's not going to be in heaven. We've already talked about them. But after verse 8, it goes down through verse 10 and following. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read all the details of it, the description of the, the city. But it's marvelous. And if you've never read this, or if it's been a while since you've read this, it'd be nice to look down through it because it is wonderfully descriptive of the beauty, of the extravagant beauty and richness of our eternal home. The size of the New Jerusalem alone is astounding. 1,500 miles wide, a city. 1,500 miles long. Just to give you a picture of that, that's basically the United States northern north border to the southern border, from Canada to Mexico, about 1,500 miles. That's the New Jerusalem. And that wide, that, that wide as well as tall. So it's basically from Colorado to the Atlantic. And 1,500 miles tall. So this is a large city. Plenty of room for everybody. And we're told that God's glory is going to fill it all. There's not going to be sun. There's not going to be a moon. But the glory of God is what's going to fill this place. And this, the, the, the material is a gold that is transparent, which is hard to fathom. How can you have a gold that is transparent? But, but that's what Scripture says. It's a transparent gold. So picture this. You've got a city that large made of transparent gold in which there's no sun or moon, but the glory of God is filling it. It's just God's glory is the light. And there's never going to be any night. It's just going to be God's glory in this massive city in which we'll live. Amazing. What are we going to do there? Just kind of play harps and walk around in the clouds? I hope it's more than that. Well, it is definitely more than that. In fact, Scripture tells us a little bit about what we'll be doing. Look at verse 3. Look at chapter 22, verse 3. John writes, There will no longer be any curse... And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have the need of the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. They will reign forever and ever, in contrast to the torment that's going on in hell. In heaven, they will reign forever and ever. His bondservants will serve him. That's what we're told. We will serve him, and we aren't told what that will look like, except that we will serve him and that we will reign forever and ever. Whatever the humble task is or the important task assigned to a person, it's going to bring immense satisfaction to us to have the task of serving God forever, whatever he's assigned us to do. And, of course, that we're told that we shall see his face. You know, the face is a pretty important part of who we are. When we're talking to people, it's their face that we look at. The face is the most expressive part, and in the face, the eyes are, are the most important part. So, like, I'll pick on you, Larry. Let's say, if I was just to, just to sit here, now, you're my friend, so this wouldn't be too terribly awkward, if the, but to just look at your eyes for, and for just, just to keep looking. It is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable just talking about it. We can't look in each other's eyes very long. Have you noticed? We just sort of have these glancing looks and then look off. Because that's where the personalness is. That's where who we really are is expressed in our eyes. And to look somebody in the face, to look somebody right in the eyes, that's not something we do very much. With family, we're lucky to have that to some extent. But strangers... 
What happens when you meet a stranger's eyes? Immediately look away. That's none of your business. You don't look in my eyes, which is weird, but that's, that's who we are and that's how we are. And, we, you know, there's always those, always those little games you play. You're looking at somebody, then they look at you, you look away, and then you look back, right? <laughs> Hoping that they've looked away. Because it's so personal. We're told that when we are in glory, we will see his face. This is something that nobody has ever been able to do all throughout the Bible. In fact, God told Moses, you cannot look at my face and live. So when I pass by, I'm going to cover you with my hand. And then when I've passed, I'll take it away and you can look at my back. But you won't look at my face. In glory, forever, we will look at his face. We will serve him. We will look at his face. And we will reign forever and ever. What a privilege. Well, as far as application, it's one simple principle and a challenge. And I love it. And this could sort of go along with what Chuck was talking about first hour because, you know, there's a reason. There's sort of a knowledge that you can wake up every morning and go, um, sin doesn't have to dominate me. But why? The why is this perspective, that we keep an eternal perspective every day of your life. Keep heaven in view. In fact, heaven is, our, our gateway to heaven is basically the rapture, if, unless we die first, and then we ultimately, at the rapture, will be resurrected. And, but our, our, our gateway into eternity as we know it in the bodies that we will inhabit eternity is the rapture. Paul calls that our blessed hope, our blessed hope. What we are looking forward to is that time when Christ comes for us. So keep an eternal perspective every day of your life, every single day. When you wake up, you're thinking about, Lord, because of the way it's going to be at the very end, I can live for you today. Having an eternal perspective is what gets you through the day. It's not just enough of just simply being faithful. That's great, but boy, that is a tough motivation if that's all it is. Why are we faithful? We're faithful because of what's coming. We're faithful because we know that we will get to experience all of this. We're faithful because we want to glorify our God and look forward to seeing him one day soon. C.S. Lewis was an atheist who later trusted Christ, and he wrote these words. He said, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. So to give you some extra thought about this eternal perspective, you can jot these verses down, but just listen to them. It's helpful just sometimes to just listen rather than read as well. So the first one is 2 Corinthians 4.17. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 5, 1. Here's another one, Philippians 3, 20. Philippians 3, 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Another, 1 Peter 2, 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world 
to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Do you hear the eternal perspective in each one of those? Peter says you are an alien and a stranger in this world. This is not home. Home is coming. So because we're aliens and strangers here, that gives us a motivation to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And Christ, through the truth of Romans 6, gives us the power to do that. Thank goodness. Well, let's read the last few verses of this chapter and of our Bible. Because once again, it gives us a good eternal perspective. Start at verse 17, and we'll read to the end. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. A great eternal perspective there and a great prayer to pray every day. Come, Lord Jesus. We've covered a lot of ground. And I know the first time around we had uh, time for questions. We've got time for questions now. So um, let's just think through this, the series. Is there anything that we've gone through or anything that's sort of come to mind that you have a question on or you'd like maybe some clarification on? Anybody? Rex? So those of us who believe in Christ, uh, why do we still still feel so insecure about our sin, even though we've trusted Him? Yeah. Hmm. That's a, that's great. That's a great question. I guess I think the answer, according to the Scripture, is that uh, we are forgetful of what's true, and this is why Peter talks about the fact um, in First uh, Peter, Second Peter. A number of times he says, uh, I, I want to remind you that you will remember these things. Paul writes to the Philippians and tells them, um, I write these things to you again and again. It's no trouble for me so that you will not forget uh, these truths. So I guess I would say that the short answer is that we, we, we are forgetful and we, we lean more back into where we were before Christ, and it's very easy to do that. Um, we've got to meditate on the truth. The truth says we're forgiven. It says it. Okay, it says that we will reign. So what will we reign over? That's a great question. In the millennial kingdom, we will reign over nations. We will reign over whatever we will reign the earth rule the earth under the authority of Christ. It's sort of Adam and Eve take two, you know, rule over the earth in God's plan. Uh, now, in the eternal state, I have no idea. I have no idea. Maybe angels. Uh, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you will judge angels, meaning that you will rule, reign over angels? So in the eternal state, it's not clear. We're just told we will serve him. But uh, in the millennial kingdom, it's a little clearer that there's, you know, something to reign over. <laughs> so, I don't know, there's, there's, there's a cloud over, over that answer. You talked about, about Hades uh, as being the place where people go when they die. And yet, you mentioned unbelievers being resurrected from Hades. So, what happens to the believers? Great question. What happens to believers when they die? Well, in the Old Testament, there was, um, let's see, we've got five minutes. In the Old Testament, there was Sheol, and Sheol 
evidently had two different levels, if it were. There was paradise, or what sometimes is called Abraham's bosom. And uh, this is what Jesus referred to in that parable of in, with the rich man and Lazarus. They died uh, and they went to paradise, and, or Abraham's bosom. And then there was another area of Sheol, that, uh, or Hades, that uh, was torment. But after Christ's resurrection, then, uh, and there's not, a, there's not a place that I can, I guess, point to in, um, in Scripture that says, it was at that point. But at some point after Christ's death and resurrection, those who were in Abraham's bosom or paradise actually now are in the presence of God in heaven because that, that sin has been paid for completely. So some try to point to the, the verse in Ephesians that said that he led forth captives on high, um, but that's, that's not real sure. So when it happened, I'm not sure, but that's... That's why it happened. Old Testament, two different levels. New Testament, now, nobody is in Hades but the, the unregenerate, the unbeliever. So, great question. Yep. Hi, can you clarify the restrainer in Second Thessalonians chapter 2? Yes, we talked about this last time. The restrainer, uh, I think we talked about that as... Probably it's going to be the Spirit of God. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah. The, the restrainer that's referred to in that we talked about, uh, what was that in the tribulation message a couple of times ago? The challenge there is if the Holy Spirit is taken away uh, with the Christians who are raptured, then how, is there anyone, how does anyone come to God in the tribulation period? And I guess the answer, is that what you're asking? Okay, the answer then would be the same way that they did in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was active in the sense that he was in the world, convicting the world, but he wasn't indwelling people permanently like he does now with the church. Um, when the rapture happens and the church leaves, that permanent indwelling uh, actually goes, you know, as well. And the Holy Spirit's still active in the world, but not in the same way that he was in the church age. Somehow, that... It restrains the the antichrist so but how i don't know and i'm not sure that scripture tells us so i'd hate to guess will there be dominions over which to rule or reign beyond the 1500 mile walk well now we're talking the eternal state we're we're not really given any 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 scripture that talks about that yeah, so I, I, couldn't, I couldn't comment on that. You will not say a good question to this. Somewhere muddled in all there, where was purgatory to the Catholic? Purgatory, yeah. Purgatory is an interesting concept. Um, I think purgatory actually came... Purgatory, I mean, you probably know, but is, is a Roman Catholic doctrine that believes that there is a, a time and a place that um, once you die that you can go and you can uh, spend an indeterminate amount of time, indeterminate to you, to sort of pay for your sins uh, until they're paid for and then or you've been punished sufficiently and then you can go to heaven. Of course, there's a challenge to that doctrinally because Jesus has either died for all of our sins or he hasn't. So there's no need for purgatory in, uh, in, in Christian theology. But purgatory, I think, came to be originally because Augustine or Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers, who the Catholics so admired, Augustine just sort of pondered in writing he wondered if there would ever be such a place as that. It was just a wondering. And, um, but the Catholics seized that and made it more of a doctrine. And I'm trying to remember, I don't remember which pope actually made it a doctrine, but I'm not, I'm not much on Catholic history. But as far as our perspective, we know that, that uh, good theology doesn't, doesn't allow for purgatory. And the scripture, of course, teaches it nowhere. 
That was a great question. <laughs> I should have started with that. All right, maybe one more, and then we'll pray. In 9.27, it talks about in as much as it is appointed to men uh, to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Is there judgment in Hades? Uh, or how does the judgment fit in with the Christians who have been forgiven these things, and then there is the reward for uh, all the good things that someone has done? Okay, great, great, great question. Um, yeah, the, the, the question then is, is appointed men wants to die and after that to face judgment. Uh, that context in Hebrews 9 is probably a judgment more of, of condemnation because it goes on after that to say Jesus will appear a second time not for to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. But to, but to answer your question about Christians, um, we talked about this some in the rapture message because we talked about right after the rapture comes what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And the judgment seat of Christ is not for sin, but it's for rewards for those of us who believe in Christ, and uh, uh, we will be rewarded at that time. So there are different judgments. Not all judgments are created equal. There are judgments of believers, a judgment of believers, which comes about for rewards. And then, of course, the judgment of unbelievers, which we just read about at the great white throne, which, uh, you know, leads, leads to hell. Well, and with that, why don't we pray? Father, thanks so much for giving us insight into the future and insight into these things that if we were left guessing, we would have as many variations as Hollywood does movies about it. When we're guessing... We're left to nothing but special effects and just convincing common sense arguments that basically boils down to live a good life and hope it's enough. And yet when we see the scripture, we see that a life judged on deeds is a life that will be condemned because our bad deeds, one bad deed, is enough to offend your holiness and to be worthy of your condemnation. But we are so grateful, our Father, that you sent your son Jesus to live the holy life that we couldn't live, to die on the cross as a payment that we could never pay, to rise again on the third day to show that that payment has been made fully, and then to make the proclamation to the world that anyone who believes in Jesus can have their sins forgiven simply by believing, simply by faith, and can look forward to all the glories that we've read about here in Revelation for the future reigning with Christ, seeing his face, serving him for all eternity in a place with no more tears, no more crying or pain. How grateful we are, Lord, for that hope. And we ask for anyone who's here today who doesn't have a confidence that if they were to die this moment that they would look forward to the hope of glory, that you would nudge them to believe in Christ and to have that hope and a joyful life resulting from it. Thank you for the eternal perspective that can affect how we live today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.